Greetings, friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to The Extra Milestone, your weekly Cinemaholics spinoff show, where we traverse the landscape of cinematic history. We go back in time uh, to discover the great, the classics, the iconic films that have made the landscape of cinema what it is today. And I'm always very excited to do it. I'm your host, as always, Sam Noland. I'm a staff writer for Cinemaholics, and I host this show every week. Uh, but you probably know that by now. What you may not know is that I am joined by a special guest returning to Cinemaholics for not the first and most certainly not the last time. Uh, always a delight to be joined by our good friend, Emily Kubankanik. Emily, how are you? Good. Excited to be here. And excited yes. that you said my last name right, like effortlessly. <laughs> I'm very, I, you, it's, it's, you might not think that my last name uh, gets mispronounced a lot, but it does get misspelled a lot. Everyone forgets the D. So I've always been very mm. uh, sensitive to making sure that I get names right uh, and stuff like that. So, so <laughs> I'm glad to have, I'm glad to have gotten it right because. I know that uh, John's going to hate this. I know that John hasn't always. <laughs> no, but it's fine. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, Emily, it's, a, it's an absolute delight to have you back on the Extra Milestone. Uh, we got to talk about Rebecca and Latrue last time, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. This time, uh, I, I said, Emily, I'd love to have you on the Extra Milestone. And of course, you said, well, obviously, yes, that would be a delight. <laughs> I sent you the list of everything that would be eligible for this episode. And you sent me a couple of movies and I noticed, huh, a lot of these are horror movies. Mm. And so we decided why not in, at, at the end of July for no particular reason, <laughs> why not do a trio of really iconic horror movies? And that is what is in store today. We are to give a quick preview. We're going to talk about, uh, one of the icons of all slasher cinema, Friday the 13th. We're going to start off with a conversation about that. And then we are going to talk about two movies that, uh, which I don't even think we realized at the time, but have sh share a lot in common and really connect to each other in interesting ways. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, the immortal universal classic, and Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, uh, a movie that I had not seen until just mm. this morning. So I'm excited to get into that. Nice. Um, and Emily, unless you had anything else uh, that, that you wanted to let the listeners know, what say we get into this horror goodness? I'm ready. Cool, yeah. So our first uh, movie is Friday the 13th. Hello? Who's that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? One. Four. Five. 
imagination. Seven. Can I help you? Now, Emily, I want to know right off the bat, because this is there there have been a lot of Friday the 13th movies, and it's it's sort of evolved culturally uh since this original film that we're gonna talk about. But I want to know what is your connection A to uh the original that we're gonna be discussing, but also just the series as a whole. Mm. Um I for the longest time I was so afraid of horror movies, I never watched them. And then in high school, uh I don't know what really sparked it, but I just like went through every classic horror movie. AMC would have like the uh, 31 days of like horror or something for Halloween. And Hmm. um, so I think this is when I watched it for the first time. I have like a vivid memory of knowing it without like the memory of actually watching it for the first time. But, um, and then I know I've watched the remake and I know I've watched the second one. But yeah, it's just weird that it is like, it's a cultural thing for me more than like an actual movie. Um, But this was like, I know this was at least like the third time I've watched it. Nice. So it was like, um, it's, it's, it's one of those things that is just sort of a presence rather than actually just uh, a movie itself. That's very interesting. And then actually that's, that's a point that I actually do want to bring up when we get into it. Um, mm-hmm. so, 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 uh, if, if I'm understanding that correctly, so you got to see, see that in a theater back in the day. No, like AMC, the TV channel. Oh, right. I thought and they would just okay. have like the marathon. <laughs> I thought you meant the theater chain. Oh, uh, no. Forgot about those. Oh my. Haven't we all? <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Maybe we're better off for it. I'm not an <laughs> fan personally. Full disclosure. I do work at Alamo draft house, but that is mm. another Another discussion entirely. We hold a bit of a grudge against AMC and their oh, no. duplicitous ways. <laughs> I worked for an AMC, so I fully support that. Um, hate for it. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> From an insider. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the reason I bring that up is because uh, this was uh, for this watching it for this podcast was my second time seeing Friday the 13th. The first time was in a theater. I got to, I uh, had this horror film class in uh, my second year of college, my second and currently last year of college uh, since I dropped out temporarily. Um, But it was a really awesome class. It was every, it was just once a week, uh, Monday evenings at like 9.45 PM. We'd all (laughs) shuffle into this uh, big theater and then we'd get uh, a lecture on like a certain aspect of the horror genre and we'd sort of like go through history chronologically and it was a ton of fun. So sometime late in the semester, probably right around October, come to think of it, uh, even though it is a summer movie, uh, we got to the slasher and it's funny because uh, we didn't just watch Friday the 13th. We did, we watched it in a double feature with cabin in the woods, Mm. which is a movie, which was really fascinating to see. Um, it's Cabin in the Woods, of course, is uh, sort of the movie like like that sort of self-reflexive look at mm-hmm. the slasher genre and the tropes therein. 
Uh, weirdly enough, watching it right after Friday the 13th, um, which I actually really like just to jump ahead a little bit, <laughs> I actually found myself not really caring for the cabin in the woods. So maybe it was just that context that sort of soured my look on it. But uh, I was just not a fan of that for whatever reason, partly because I enjoyed Friday the 13th so much. And it's a movie that really plays uh, wonderfully in a crowd. Um <clears throat> Emily, I've already given away uh, that I I do uh, I do admire the first Friday the Thirteenth very much, and a lot of its sequels actually. Uh, it, it's when we uh, decided to talk about this, I'm like, you know what? I have a week. I'm gonna watch all twelve of them. Oh my god! <laughs> and I did, oh. and so and I'm actually gonna write an article ranking them all because why not? It's a it's nice. a 40th anniversary, so keep an eye out for that. It's gonna be coming out uh, about a week or so on Cinemaholics.com, but. Um, so, so you've uh, you've established that you sort of you that you've grown a connection to this movie, but it, just in terms of actually like looking at it critically as a movie, uh, how how big of a fan would you say you are of Friday the Thirteenth? Um, upon watching it today again, mm-hmm. um, I realized a lot of things that I didn't notice when I was in high school because I hadn't studied film or whatever. Um, and I appreciate a lot of what it's doing. I know like they view it as just a way of making money and to like capitalize off of Halloween success. But um, I really enjoyed it and I liked it not just for like the horror aspect, but like as a movie as well. Yeah. I think that's the thing that really struck me uh, the first and second time watching it is just um, how it's, it's uh, uh, we're going to, we're going to be talking about spoilers. So obviously uh, that might be implicit, but just in case you don't know, we are going to give away the ending and there is a bit of a twist at the end, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> knowing that and going back uh, to watch it again, I was really impressed by just how kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for kind of subdued the whole thing is uh, and how it really, that actually makes for better terror as opposed to just sort of having all the crazy stuff that would be in a lot of the sequels. Um, and uh it's it's funny that you mentioned how they just uh, made it for money because that was actually that was kind of the primary concern. The director Sean S. Cunningham, uh, who had previously worked on Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left, which is a really fascinating yeah. uh, horror movie from the early seventies. Um, I'm not entirely convinced it's good, but it's really fascinating. <laughs> uh, he was, uh, he saw Halloween and was like, there, I want to do that. I want to sort of capitalize on that. But, um, he sort of had this artistic, uh, uh, inclination to sort of like turn it up to 11, so to speak, to make it a little bit more of like a, uh, Oh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Like just, just really exciting and stuff and wanted Mm. to, wanted to, uh, make it even bigger, like a roller coaster ride and say, I want to have, uh, I want to have it be like really terrifying and just from one moment to the next stuff, uh, stuff's happening. Uh, I wanted to make it more exciting. And as it turns out, sort of subvert the genre a little bit when it comes to who the actual killer is. Um, Emily, I might be putting you a little bit on the spot here, but we've, we've <laughs> talked about sort of the, uh, sort of the legacy, sort of the, the idea of the movie, but what, what is like actually, What's sort of the actual plot? Like, like, can you set the stage a little bit? Do you think I can try my best like campfire, uh, horror story. If yes. um, I try picture, <laughs> picture Emily with a flashlight under her face. Um, so it starts out with a flashback to the 1950s and, mm. um, all these camp counselors are playing music 
and then two of them sneak away to go um, have sex in this yes. attic. <laughs> and so then some someone um, comes and kills them both. We don't know who. And then immediately it flashes towards present day. Um, and it's also June the 13th in the 50s and now in the present day. And so then... This one woman uh, or young girl, she is trying to get to Camp Crystal Lake um, and the whole town's like, it's cursed. Don't go there. Da, 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 da. And so then yeah. we kind of <laughs> have this vibe that it's dangerous, but we don't know why yet. Yeah, um, it's got a real Dracula vibe. Like when mm. uh, when when the guy's going like, I'm here to to see Count Dracula and everyone's like, oh, gosh, why? Yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that? That's what it really reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so I guess, like, this one guy's trying to fix up the camp until he, um, and start having campers again, and they haven't had that since, like, the 60s. People have kept trying, but bad things have kept happening there. Mm-hmm. And so this is, like, the week where they're trying to fix things up, um, and there's a bunch of young teenage camp counselors, but each of them... Um, starts dying off um, yeah. for reasons unknown and then shit gets crazy. Yeah, it re- <laughs> you're not wrong. That's a good That's a good way to sum it up. Yeah, it starts with, <laughs> it actually kind of takes a while besides that initial um, uh, flashback or I guess mm-hmm. it's not really flashing back, but you know what I'm saying? That initial yeah, like, prologue. setup. The prologue, yes, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, where we get to see it's it's uh, the uh, the POV shot, which was of course cribbed mm-hmm. from uh, Halloween, but it's the first time when it's used really interestingly here because of how long it takes to actually see the killer, not from mm-hmm. their perspective. It's putting the audience like in the mind of this murderer while never actually showing you what they look like. So it's really, mm-hmm. uh, I, I almost wonder what the movie would have been like if, and I'm sure there's something like this, but where we never actually get that reveal where it's just entirely from POVs uh, for or, uh, point of view shots, just seeing the victims and we never actually get to find out that would be really sort of, really sort of unsettling voyeurism. Don't you? Yeah. Think? Mm-hmm. I wonder. I'm, I'm sure there's a movie out there like that. If 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 there is, let me know because I'm very curious. Um, but yeah, it does take a little while after that for it to really get going with the horror. We we see that they're trying to open up this camp. It's just in the woods of New Jersey, uh, and it's an actual camp that is still in operation today. I was fascinated to find that out that they mm-hmm. still like it's still probably not right now, obviously because of the state of the world and everything. But uh, <laughs> it like during the summers and everything. Uh, it's actually a camp, but they have like a memorial to Friday the 13th. I'm like, that must be really terrifying sometimes just mm-hmm. to know like, this is where all that fictional stuff went down. Gosh, I wonder, uh, I hope none of it's real. I would be very, <laughs> I would be very scared. I'm not a, I'm not a camper as you could tell, <laughs> um, but it's funny. I have, I, I have been a, a camp counselor on multiple occasions and I, I'm, I was really impressed by the way it was able to just sort of recreate that feeling of camaraderie among the counselors, uh, especially with no campers there uh, where they're just sort of like a bunch of teenagers, just sort of being careless uh, doing what teenagers do in multiple senses of the word. And <laughs> uh, I, I really like the cast and I love that we're allowed to get to know 
this uh this cast of characters so that it actually we actually feel something when they start to get killed off that's something that i think the second friday the 13th is also very successful at less so as the movies go on let's just say (laughs) but but we are talking about the first one um i want to know emily we sort of set the stage is is what what's like a specific scene or a specific aspect uh of the movie that you really took notice of this time that you really uh were able to get into um, I think one of them is definitely the POV type of um, shooting. I feel like the way that we, we don't really see a lot of, we see gore, but not really as it's happening as much as in like other horror movies. I kind of like, resi- or it sticks with me that like, we kind of see their last waking, like facial expression. And then like, cut away um in a lot of the times that people are dying um yeah. which is really interesting um and a lot of the i don't know a lot of the movies that i like kind of um use the camera where it's shaky and they're in the woods following people and um so i enjoy that it's definitely unsettling um but i really like the music um I think it's like subtle enough in the beginning that it's not like, Oh, they're definitely trying to scare us. And then, but like, um, towards the end, it like gets really powerful. And so those are things I liked. Nice. Yeah. I do love that. Um, uh, that sort of creeping idea of it. There's one scene in particular where they're all just sort of, they're all just sort of hanging out at the lake. There's like this pier there. Um, and we see, off in the distance, a POV shot from like the woods across the lake of just looking at all these counselors. And they're like, oh gosh, what's going on? And by the way, there's this other counselor, uh, Annie, the first uh, person we meet, who has Mm -hmm. mysteriously not shown up yet. She's actually the first uh, counselor that we see see get killed or uh, that we understand to be murdered. and that's really frightening. And there's this, there's, I, ha- I have to mention this. It has nothing to do with anything, but there's during that scene, someone pretends to start drowning. I think it's Ned, like the jokester. Mm-hmm. And they, and two of the, two of the other counselors go to dive into the water. And the way Kevin Bacon dives into the water is one of the funniest things I've <laughs> ever seen. Cause it's literally just a belly flop, but like with his hands in the formation of a dive. And I was just taken like, you know, when you watch a movie and it gets a very specific reaction out of you. And then for whatever reason, it just sort of fades out of your memory. And then you watch it again and you're like, Oh yeah. And you get the exact same reaction. I remember yeah. thinking it was the funniest thing ever when I saw it in that uh, class in college, just the way that <laughs> Kevin Bacon ungracefully dives into the water. Um, I would, I would feel remiss if I did not bring that up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so we, so we start to see them all. Uh, it, t- it takes them a while to, to catch on. They, they play a game of strip monopoly, which would not work at all because the implication is that they're not going to use money and I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing, but the game is not going to be, it's not going to play out the way that you think it is. So that that is amusing to me. Um, but it takes them a while to catch on and uh, we just see them get slaughtered one by one. I think Kevin Bacon's death, especially is this really iconic image where he's just laying in a bed and then an arrow pierces up through his throat. Mm-hmm. And it's like really terrifying. Um, but eventually we get to... Uh, we get to the last 
camp counselor, um, Alice, played by uh, Adrian King, who's really, really good in this movie. I like her a lot. Uh, and is just just running for her life when suddenly who shows up but this this kindly older lady. <laughs> it is it is Pamela Voorhees played by uh, played by Betsy Palmer in uh, a reveal that that still is just fascinating to this day. Um, Emily, when you first when you first saw this movie, uh, did you know about that twist going in? Um. It's hard for me to remember. I feel like I knew of Jason, but I didn't know of the reveal and like how that happens. Um, So it was definitely like a surprise to me um, the way that it unfolded. And I loved it. Yeah, it's hard not to love. It's a really good reveal where Mm -hmm. uh, all this murder has happened. Like, and everyone knows about it. No one has any illusions anymore of like, say, why is everyone disappearing for no reason? Everyone knows that they're being that they're being stalked and killed. And as it turns out, it's uh, it's Mrs. Voorhees, uh, the first villain of the Friday of the Thirteenth series, which is just fascinating to think about. And uh, she uh, she goes after Alice, of course. And in this really like really elaborate uh, chase that involves like barricading doors and going in and out of multiple cabins and buildings on the campsite and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually is is freaking beheaded by a machete. And it's like, wow, that's crazy. So that's 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 kind of the basic gist about this movie. Um, I think what I want to know most uh, from you, Emily, is what is it you think about uh, this movie? Um, that caught on so much because I don't I forget if I mentioned or not uh, earlier, but this was like kind of an unprecedented uh, box office success. It was the fir- it was like one of the first movies of its kind of this uh, caliber, kind of the independent slasher to be like a huge hit. Um, it was uh, distributed by Paramount and so therefore received a big ad push and was uh, was a really big hit. And to this day, with the exception of uh, Freddy versus Jason, uh, is still the highest grossing of the Friday the 13th series. So what was hmm. what is it about this movie that uh, made it catch on so much and and be uh, be such a huge deal? Like what sets it apart, do you think? Um I feel like it has a lot of gore, but not in a way that's like obvious. I don't know. Like it doesn't feel overpowering. Mm-hmm. Um and I feel like it has enough camp pun intended. Yes that it's enjoyable <laughs> to watch um, and like really fun, but not like so cringeworthy, which there are definitely other movies that came after this that um, have that. Um, and I think that's why it works so well for mm-hmm. me. And I think th- the ending is super satisfying. It's just really fun too. Um, yeah. yeah. It's really fun to watch. That's why I say like as much fun as it is to, uh, to, like watch it at home on a laptop or a TV or anything. Uh, getting to see it in a theater was a really fun experience, especially with yeah. like th- how many of us there uh, that hadn't seen it. And I, uh, I neglected to mention the epilogue, but uh, that's what happens is that Alice sort of like collapses and then wakes up in the hospital or no, actually she goes, she gets on like a little boat and just sort of floats out into the river, having like everyone, all of her friends have been killed. She's just murdered someone. This has been a big day. 
And so just uh, just sort of drifts out and then the police show up and she's like, hey, I'm over here. And then like a weird corpse lurches out of the out of the lake and like grabs her and drags her down. And then she wakes up into the hospital. Uh, we find out in later movies uh, and at the end of this one that that was Jason. That was like like I guess and it's never been completely clear why this happened but Jason survived and has been in the lake all this time murdering anyone who comes near uh mm-hmm. has gained this weird immortality somehow which <laughs> uh, which is kind of the running joke of the series um but yeah she wakes up in the hospital and believes it to be like some sort of a hallucination and says and this and this scene is weird this is another thing that has that doesn't have to do with anything but for whatever reason I, when i both times i've watched that scene where she gets dragged into the lake and then wakes up in the hospital later i swear she got a haircut between those two <laughs> scenes could be like I like I rewinded it a couple times, and I'm like, that is not the same hair. I think maybe it was filmed on a different day. Uh, I don't. Maybe like the doctors cut away some of her hair for no particular reason. It just always <laughs> weirded me out so much. Um, but yeah, I think that is. I think something that's really uh, remarkable about this movie is, uh, again, like I mentioned, the way it, uh, the way it's like lets you get to know these characters like they're they're teenagers they're dumb but in a way that we can all recognize you know Mm -hmm. um i think it's really endearing and i think that's why uh these this cast has remained so uh has loomed so largely in the minds of friday the 13th fans um but i think also the way that it just subverts that idea of we think we've seen these movies like black christmas has come out halloween has come out uh we've had Jallo movies and stuff like the slasher genre existed at this point but Mm -hmm. this is the one that kind of said now what if it's all the stuff you recognize all the kills all the uh uh all the violence and everything but at the end it's revealed not to be sort of a crazed man sort of a lunatic guy who seemed to have like escaped from some sort of asylum or anything but just this just this woman just this mother who wants to avenge her son that's like that's really fascinating and it's especially um you get this certain sympathy for mrs Voorhees. like that must have been really terrible because i heard this brilliant um betsy palmer in an interview somewhere over the years uh basically said that my reading of the character was that she got pregnant with jason at a young age and the dad like skipped or something and just wanted nothing to do with the family and so she had to raise him alone and everything. And then when he was killed, it was because of the very thing that brought Jason about. It was because these counselors were not paying attention to the kids. Uh, they were off engaging in attic intercourse <laughs> like you do in at summer camp or whatever. Um, and uh, it was, and that was probably the very thing that brought Jason into the world. So it must've been just incredibly traumatic but also she's murdering like a dozen kids in cold blood who have nothing to do with uh, who have nothing to do with Jason's death at all. Like uh, there's, we have no reason to believe that they'd be negligent or anything. And so just that fear of there being a cursed place and you do not have to have done anything uh, like there, there does not have to have been a sin that you've committed uh, mm. to deserve this fate. It can just be there. It could be just waiting 
waiting in the in the in the bushes peering out that's why that voyeur uh perspective is so uh terrifying um that's what i think works really well about it um and so i remind me emily you've seen uh the second one correct yeah and i was in the process of re-watching it and then i fell asleep (laughs) so uh (laughs) no comments on that one fair enough Fair enough. The, sec- the second one plays very much the same way. Uh, yeah. Although this one is actually, uh, Jason is actually the killer. Um, and uh, it, it's funny, I, in reading up on this, uh, Tom Savini, the makeup artist, the mm-hmm. immortal makeup artist, was really against that of uh, of Jason showing up. Um, as was, at, yeah, at the end, like it should have been. And uh, honestly, I don't think it's the best thing, especially when they just sort of write it off as a hallucination. Like it probably could have done without that. Uh, evidently the, the idea was that they just wanted like one last jump scare and they thought mm. that was as good as any, they had no idea that this would spawn a series, uh, or maybe they did, but they did not know that it would go on to be like, so odd in retrospect. Um, I, I had a point to make, oh yeah, Tom Savini was really against that, um, Shout out to him. He lives in Pittsburgh. <laughs> oh, does he really? Nice. Yeah. That's a very, you're a very good makeup artist. Tom, I know you're listening. If I make, mm. <laughs> I'm a very large admirer of your work. So, so well done. Um, and uh, what else was I going to say? Oh yeah. So yeah, the second one plays out very much the same, but again, Jason is the killer and that's sort of the trajectory that the series went on. It just got to really weird bonkers places like, like watching them all within a week is a strange experience because it goes (laughs) from one movie to the next, no rhyme, no reason. uh, And they cranked them out. There were eight of them in the eighties and uh, I actually like a lot of them. Uh, Like I was surprised to find out how, just how much fun I had with it, but also it was weird to see how just this one, uh, just this movie that this very modest might not be the word, but very subdued, uh, very kind of thoughtful uh, slasher went on to such a cacophonous franchise of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it reminded me, and this is a segment that I did uh, sort of on on the fly with the, uh, when I was talking about all quiet on the Western front with, uh, Julia Tatey and Will Ashton, uh, we we recommended a few similar movies uh, that we think would be good, like supplemental viewing and everything. It reminded me of the way the Rambo series completely flew off the rails after the hmm. first one. Yeah, I don't know. Ha- what, have you seen uh, any of the Rambo no, movies? No, I have okay. not. So it's, uh, I'm sure you know about them though. The, the first one is a Vietnam vet who... Uh, tries to just sort of immerse himself back into the regular world, but is really um, just sort of, uh, just sort of targeted needlessly by this Hmm. really, uh, this really inept police chief played by the late great Brian Dennehy. And it's this really thoughtful story about like the way that veterans are treated and how uh, they can have such a hard time getting back into the world, especially when they're confronted with violence. Like it's really traumatic and everything. And then the next, literally the next movie had Rambo going back to Vietnam and like winning the war retroactively. So it's just so strange how immediately it flew off the rails uh, and it only got weirder from there. I was wondering, I, 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 I told you this uh, earlier that we were going to do this. What's a movie mm-hmm. that uh, similar in some way or in some ways, uh, or maybe not so similar to Friday the 13th uh, that you think would maybe make a good uh, double feature in theory? 
Um, so there's a movie called Madman, one hmm. uh, word. Um, it's from the year after this, and it's like a lower, lower, lower budget of the same <laughs> movie. Um, and I watched it through the Shutter series, The Last Drive-In, um, which I re- recommend like watching it because they have all the like trivia and tidbits in between, um, which makes, but it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and like, but set in the same kind of uh, setting. It's at a camp in, I oh. think like Long Island or like Staten Island or something. And um yeah, really crazy. Um, same amount of gore, and it uses the same like POV thing, um, but it's much campier and um, way crazier. That sounds awesome. I've never heard of that actually. I'm adding that to my list right now. Is is there anyone uh, notable that no uh, someone might recognize? No, it's just all all <laughs> yeah nobody. yeah. I That's- guess like it totally flopped and no one really remembered it until I think like not too long ago. Um, and like, it's like a cult classic, um, for horror fans now. That's the way I like it. (laughs) (laughs) No one recognizable. That's awesome. Uh, I will, I will add that to my list right now. Um, Emily, I, if I've, I've talked a lot as I, as I often do, as much as I try not to. Um, is there anything else about uh, Friday the 13th that we maybe skipped over or didn't get to mention uh, that you just wanted to bring up? Um, I guess for me, I the second time watching it, I didn't really know how to handle the like final girl um, hmm. thing because I feel like it's really interesting that it ends up being this mom at the end and you're kind of thinking oh she's safe like she feels kind of safe for a second and then like obviously she's the killer um Mm -hmm. but i i feel like having a woman be the perpetrator would definitely like turn things um around for the genre i don't know like if that was the intention or not i haven't read or anything but um that was just something that resonated with me this time Interesting. So like, so, so you're saying like, if it would maybe, uh, maybe send the wrong message, you think? No, I just mean like, I know a lot of people talk about, um, the final girl thing in, in slasher movies, but most of the time it's like a man killing them. Um, and like having, you know, they're punished for their sexual, uh, experiences or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just, it just felt interesting that like, um, this woman was the one doing it, um, instead of a man. I don't know if that was anything notable, but that's just like something that made me think, I don't have like a, a true analysis of it yet. That's totally fine. No, it is, it is, it is just, uh, just very interesting to think about how, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they, they acknowledge that in the movie, like, like, as you were just mentioning how Alice is like, almost thinks, oh, I've been rescued. And mm-hmm. it's just this, uh, just this reversal of like, oh, not even, uh, not even like our notions of safety are sacred out here in the woods it's like this real sort of i i no pun intended it's it's this real no man's land of morals um where just everything you know doesn't really matter and there are monsters and and murderers around every corner and it's just it's 
uh, it's all part of the fun, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's very fascinating to bring that up. There have been a lot of readings of this movie. Obviously, we're only scratching the surface, but uh, yeah, Friday the Thirteenth has a lot to offer. I think it's it still holds up to this day uh, really quite well, um, especially mm-hmm. uh, in comparison to other similar movies of the kind, some of which we mentioned. And yeah, I think it 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 is really uh, as I said before, it's just a really interesting case study of how we we have so many franchises over the years even even not even just now just over the history of cinema and so many of them have sort of evolved in really fascinating ways uh and friday the 13th is one of the most stark evolutions out there uh horror or otherwise so i think it's really it's valuable with movies like this to go back and sort of set like your notions to the side you don't have to get rid of them or anything but just sort of like take what you know kind of forget about it for a little bit and then just go back and see what is the thing actually. That's why, that's why I brought up Rambo and just to see, Mm. just to compare it with that uh, idea of how things evolve. Um, I really like it a lot and I, and I can tell you do too. So it's, Mm -hmm. if you haven't seen it by all means, like uh, now is as good a time as any, we've given away the twist, but it's, it's, it's fun regardless. Um, So I think that's, I think we can leave it at that saying that Friday the 13th, pretty darn good Mm -hmm. i'd I'd say at least one thumb up maybe two (laughs) three if i had that many hands Um, (laughs) so i think we're gonna move on we're gonna we're jumping around chronologically a little bit uh we're gonna go back to the year 1935 and we are going Mm -hmm. to talk about the iconic uh classic of universal's monster series that went on for quite some time it is Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, Emily, what as I'm going to I'm going to pose the same question again. What is your connection to uh, not only Bride of Frankenstein in particular, but also just this uh, entire sort of footnote of the Universal Monster series of the 30s? Mm, um, well, this movie I have been trying to watch for like years, but it's always been one of those movies <laughs> where I'll like turn on. And then I'll end up doing something else or like I'll turn on for friends to watch and then we end up talking through the whole thing. And so I hadn't really finished it until just recently. Um, But I know of the character, like the bride, um, Mm -hmm. way more than I like expected to like before going into this movie. Um, But I'm like really familiar with Frankenstein, the book. I've read it in multiple literature classes. Um, And so seeing that kind of uh, change the story changed or in some of the like original book coming up in the sequel was really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but yeah, Universal movies, I I love. Um, the Dracula of this one is like right under Nosferatu for me, um, but yeah. I love it so much. Like the set uh, design is like one of my favorite um, set pieces ever in like old Hollywood. I love that stuff. Um, oh, yeah. So these monster movies are really uh, have a really special place. There's so many, so many classics. There are mm-hmm. all the Frankenstein movies, all the Dracula movies. The Invisible Man is mm-hmm. uh, one of my personal favorites. Uh, Creature from a Black Lagoon. The list goes on. Yes. Uh, and they're they're really fascinating. So I would highly recommend uh, just, just sort of diving into the entire history of that. That's a whole lot of fun. You'll get a lot of the DNA of the horror genre as we know it now comes from those universal movies. Um, and just to plug... Another thing, if you're really interested in, like, the history of it, uh, um, You Must Remember This has a series on um, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, um, which kind of, like, talks about their relationship and, like, the movies that they made uh, separately and together. Um, So it's really interesting as well. Nice. That sounds awesome. And that's a podcast, right? Yes. Cool. I've, you're, the recommendations are flying out left and right with Emily <laughs> Kuban Canning. I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, yeah, th- it's it's funny. This is um, this is not the first Frankenstein movie we've talked about on Extra Milestone. Back in hmm. January, uh, John Negroni and I. It's weird that we started with this one, but we talked about Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, which oh. is a huge ode to these universal movies. It sort of mm-hmm. takes all of the, the Frankenstein ones that is it sort of takes all of them and sort of mushes them together in this really glorious, uh, just ball of monster awesomeness. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that movie. Me too. Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. I really, <laughs> John, not as much of a fan. And so if I, that's actually one of my favorite uh, episodes of Extra Milestone I've ever done uh, was when we talked about Young Frankenstein. So if you'd like to hear a little bit more detail about that movie in particular, uh, I do recommend that one as much as I hate to self-promote in that way, but that was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and uh, and it's, it's always fun just getting to go back and see like where a lot of those references came from. Uh, it's, uh, I, this is my first time, or not my, uh, my uh, second time, seeing Bride of Frankenstein back in, mm. I want to say 2016, I was like a senior or junior in high school. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do exactly what I just recommended. I'm just going to watch a bunch of the universal monster movies. And this one was absolutely one of my favorites when I first saw it. Uh, just, just the, the imagery and the storytelling and just how efficient it all was. Uh, that was really stunning to me. Um, it is, of course, a sequel to Frankenstein, directed by James Whale. Uh, James Whale returned to direct, uh, at, and he really, really didn't want to. Like He declined <laughs> on so many occasions to do it, uh, but was eventually persuaded because uh, he felt a little bit of inspiration. And also he said, I'll do it if I can have like a lot of creative control over it. Which he did get because, and this was hilarious to me, the head of Universal, uh, Carl Lamel, is that how you say it? Lamel? Lamel? I'm not entirely sure. But the head of Universal was simply on vacation at the time. Like he wasn't (laughs) there. And so James Whale got to just sort of do whatever he felt like. Uh, and, And it went through a huge extended editing process and it's, i don't know if you read up on the production at all but uh it was just riddled with problems i mm-hmm. think uh, boris karloff had a dislocated hip 
mm-hmm. <laughs> that like had to be held in place uh, throughout the shoot. I think um, uh, uh, Colin Clive, who plays Dr. Henry Frankenstein, not Victor for whatever reason, <laughs> Henry Frankenstein uh, <laughs> had a broken leg and had to, and you, and you'll notice never like almost never walks in any of his scenes. Um, and there was just so much that went on, uh, on the production. So, uh, since, since we're here, we might as well, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, Mary Shelley's novel and how it sort of evolved into the universal movies, which are sort of now understood to be kind of the definitive image of Mm. the story of Frankenstein. Um, so I, 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 hate to put you on the spot again, but what is, <laughs> what is sort of the idea of the novel specifically? Let's just start with that. Like what's give us the premise if you don't know that already. Um, okay. So Victor Frankenstein is not the monster. He is the doctor, yes. uh, scientist. <laughs> um, and he, uh, it's been a long time since I've read it, but he, um, starts looking in graveyards for dead bodies to Mm -hmm. reanimate. Um, and he ends up making the monster, um, and which the movie refers to as Frankenstein or in like, that's become the, um, thing that people think of. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the monster tries to like learn how to be a human. Um, but accidentally, or I can't remember if in the book he accidentally kills someone. He tr- he tries to save a young girl and people like find out about him and go crazy and go after Victor. And um, I did it. And so then I'm trying to remember, I think like <laughs> he um, ends up going away on a like ship and then, yep. yeah. And um, that's the last thing I remember. Yeah, it's, 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 I apologize. I should have asked you before this, but yeah, it's, I, I read it like a year or so ago. Um, mm. uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, like Frankenstein is just sort of possessed to say, you know what? I'm going to try to unlock the secret of, of bringing back life from the dead. I'm going to essentially play God. Uh, mm-hmm. and indeed the, the, uh, subtitle of the novel is the modern Prometheus. And so, mm. And uh, the thing that really struck me as I went back to read the original novel recently is that is just how sort of neglectful Frankenstein is of the monster. Like it's, <laughs> it's sort of just, it sort of just comes and goes really fast. Like, and I reanimated the creature and then he left mm-hmm. like the creature just sort of leaves. Uh, and then eventually they cross paths again. And um, it's all about sort of, punishing the sin of trying to take life into our own hands this very mm-hmm. sanctimonious uh thing that we can barely even understand and uh trying to harness it for really selfish and irresponsible uh needs and uh that was mostly what they adapted in the original movie in Frankenstein mm-hmm. from 1931. That was just, they make the creature, the creature goes off and eventually they all die in a 
flaming windmill accident. So we think. Yes, as it turns out, I'm not quite dead yet, sir. (laughs) The first thing we find out is that neither of them actually die. Which is so interesting because I feel like that's the setup for most, like, slasher sequels. Yes. It's like every time you think someone's dead and they're actually not, and they've been doing this since the 30s. Yeah, and not only like slasher movies in the Frankenstein series itself, I'll never understand why they did this time and time again. At the end of every single movie, Frankenstein's monster would die, and then the first thing that happened in the next one was it turns out they're not. I'm like, come <laughs> up with a different angle for once. Um, yeah. And you know who uh, who has that distinction of coming back to life at the beginning of every new movie? Jason freaking Voorhees. Mm -hmm. It all comes full circle. (laughs) I think that's fascinating. Um, And yeah, so, so they all, so it turns out they, it takes place like seconds after the original movie ends, uh, a la star Wars, the last Jedi. Uh, (laughs) No time has passed. And they, uh, they say like, all right, well, we're going to send you back. We're going to take Dr. Frankenstein back to the uh, castle. He's set to be married today. We're not going to let this incident with the creature that's been brought back from the dead put a damper on our spirits. It's kind of funny how much, like how quickly everyone kind of gets on board with this, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that's always weirded me out about these movies in particular is just how quickly everyone is to take to the idea that mortality is an illusion. Uh, mm-hmm. at least for this one uh, character. And so it's it's funny how we sort of get this reverse version of the scene from the original where f- this iconic image where Dr. Frankenstein says, it's alive. And then we see someone hunched over Frankenstein. Hey, look, he's alive. So mm-hmm. again, all comes full circle. Um, and uh, it's uh, we see in Bride of Frankenstein, we see a couple of plot points from the original novel sort mm-hmm. of show up in this because the, the, the original is actually a rather unfaithful adaptation. Like it sort of just takes the basic premise and a couple of plot points, but puts its own spin on it. Um, and so there's, there's a way to look at it that it's a bad adaptation, which mm-hmm. it is. Um, and not that that's the end of the world. Like the wizard of Oz is a very unfaithful adaptation to L Frank Baum's original novel. So hmm works of literature have survived worse but also it it uh, it's i have mixed feelings about that i don't know what what is what is your stance on the way that uh these movies sort of alter mary shelley's uh story emily um well coming from a screenwriting background i like know that books cannot be like completely faithfully adapted to -hmm. the screen most of the time um but I feel like it's really interesting to me that they were able to like continue coming back to the novel in the sequel. And um, they were obviously still interested in the like source material and what they could do with it um, in the franchise, um, mm-hmm. which I found really cool. Um, and then like, we didn't talk about this yet, but they have like a prologue um, with actual like Mary Shelley and her mm-hmm. husband and like them talking about the novel, um, which yeah. was really interesting to me. So, yeah, it's it is kind of a self-serving thing that sort of made me look mm-hmm. at it, like give it a little side eye because we see uh, Mary Shelley played by Elsa Lanchester, who also at the end of the movie plays uh, the bride of uh, Frankenstein's monster, which I loved. Sh- 
to show the duality of humanity mm-hmm. and storytelling. It's really, it's really <laughs> awesome. And Elsa Lanchester is fantastic in both roles. Um, mm-hmm. Lord Byron is there and they're talking about like, oh, Mary, we're so impressed by that, uh, by that Frankenstein story you've written. Who knew that such a horrifying tale could come from such an a woman. unassuming woman? Yeah, that's, the, <laughs> that's really the, a girl. Like, that's the kind of thing. Uh, that's the kind of thing you'd see on like Star Trek, the original series all the time is just this <laughs> attempt at like being progressive and equal and everything. But also they they still have this sort of condescending stance that they're taking. So mm-hmm. that's it's there. Um, she kind of just takes it, though. She's like, yeah, yeah I did it. Like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's which is very admirable. But the thing that that is really fascinating is they say like the implication is that the book Frankenstein published by Mary Shelley in this in this world of the movie uh was just the events of the original film. Mm-hmm. Uh so it's sort of this it's they're sort of like taking actual history and adapting it to their own uh continuity that they've established. Again, it's not the end of the world, but it is kind of like okay, I see what you did there. You're sort of just like you're viewing your own version of the story as the definitive thing and then she says ah but wait you see those characters they're not dead <laughs> and then let me tell you what happened and what follows is the movie bride of frankenstein um mm-hmm. in which uh again they survive the windmill accident and the 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 frankenstein's monster just sort of goes off and is not even really doing anything like this. This I, I love the way that they elicit a lot of sympathy for uh, the monster itself in this movie. Just sort of goes about like trying to figure out what am I? What is this world? Uh, ends up saving someone in mm-hmm. in the woods in this little clearing, but uh, because uh, he's got like scars and stuff, and is this really uh, sort of grotesque in air quotes being. Uh, is sort of chased away by hunters and everything is literally crucified in one scene. So that's, uh, that's not subtle at all. Yeah. Uh, I I really like that at all. Um, And then eventually this Dr. Septimus Pretorius, which is just one of the great (laughs) names shows up to Frankenstein's castle and says, look what I've done. I've also figured out how to create life from thin air and has like a bunch of miniature people in jars, which I had completely Uh. forgotten about. Mm hmm. I want, do you know, like, how they were able to achieve that? Oh, gosh. I I tried reading up on it, and my brain freaking exploded. It was insane, like, how the the number, the meticulous detail they had to employ to get that, Mm. those series of shots. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, says, listen, I know what to do. We're going to create a mate for the creature. See, you brought this person into the world. Uh, You rejected it. The like humanity as a whole rejected it. Uh, why not? Like, why not give the creature at least someone to share their exile with? Like, that's kind of the implication. Mm-hmm. Um, and Frankenstein, in a very detailed bit of character development, says, "Okay, let's do it." <laughs> After having moments ago renounced his creation and taken like practically a blood oath to never do it again just decides to do it again uh, mm-hmm. and so sets in motion 
the series of events that is Bride of Frankenstein. Emily, I'm going to ask uh, the same question again. What is a uh, what's we've set the stage? What's something about this movie uh, that really that you really took notice of having officially seen it for the first time? Um, I guess the fact that it uses things that happen in the book, um, but in different like variations of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I feel like it's interesting because we've already seen the monster kind of understand how humans work in the last movie. And so now I just feel like I, I wonder like what we are trying to see him learn, I guess, like, I don't know. So the novel, um, he ends up going to this blind man's house. Um, and since he can't see him, he's very nice to him. And that happens in this, um, movie in the book. Um, there, his children come and then they see him and they run away. I don't remember that happening in this one, in the movie. Yeah. And they actually sort of divide that plot point in the book into like two separate, uh, moments in the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, where in the book, there's like this family, they live in like a little cottage or or it might have even been a tent or something. Uh, and the father or maybe the grandfather is blind. Everyone but him leaves. The The monster says, this is my inn. I'm going to go mm-hmm. like get along with a human. Uh, and of course, because uh, he's blind and has no reason uh, to reject the monster, obviously they they become very friendly. Uh, the monster, by the way, in the book, very well spoken and mm-hmm. not not like the uh, not like the sort of hulking, lumbering creature that we know today. Um, mm-hmm. That that was something that I found very fascinating. Um, and yeah, in this movie, we see just before uh, the monster goes to the blind man's shack, uh, like this family sort of just gets terrorized. Like they're just out in the woods, like around a campfire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the monster goes up and is like, hey, help me. I'm a living being. And they're like, yeah, and they run away. So it's mm-hmm. this very, it's this very obvious metaphor, but also a very powerful one. How just the simple uh, act of not being able to see what this creature looks like uh, is all it takes to understand that, oh, it's a living being too. And that's where, that's why, again, I say the, the sympathy for the monster is really impressive in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I guess the other thing that struck me this time was when I studied the book, um, we talked a lot about the homoeroticism that you can read into um, in the book. And I feel like by trying to create a mate for him that is a woman, um, even Mm -hmm. though they can't, I don't know if they can procreate, like that really doesn't matter. But I feel like it was the movie's way of kind of wiping that out. And um especially during the time that it happens, it it starts out with like the seal of approval from the Hayes office. And um, so I just found that super interesting that that was like the premise of the movie. The first thing they wanted to do was let's make a wife for him. Like, yeah. (laughs) Interesting. I I think the way I read into it is uh, because that is, that comes from the novel as well. The idea of um, giving the monster a mate because Essentially, the the attitude is it's the least we can do. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think the implication is that they'll like have children or anything. It's just so that they'll have each other. Um, although in the in the novel, what happens is that the monster threatens uh, threatens Frankenstein, says, 
build me a mate or I'll exact my revenge. And sure enough, Frankenstein's like, okay, fine, I'll do it. But then at the last second changes his mind because Mm -hmm. very specifically of the fear that what if they procreate and my creation uh, overtakes the entire world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it it is really, um, it is a little demeaning that like, just the idea of creating someone very specifically to be a partner to someone else to like complete someone in air quotes mm-hmm. who already exists, uh, which actually I think they're not unaware of be considering how, uh, like how the bride reacts when yeah. she, she first, uh, when she first shows up. So we might as well just talk about that. Cause um, eventually uh, they do go through with it. They do create the bride, the whole business with the lightning and everything that mm-hmm. all goes down. And then uh, they, they unveil her to the world. She's got this fantastic hair that apparently took forever to, to uh, style and everything. And there's like a <laughs> wire sculpture inside of the wig as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's neat. Uh, very iconic look. And the monster's like, ah, yes, my beloved greetings. It is I. Your your dear doctor or not doctor, your dear monster partner. And she's just like, hiss. And, that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of it. It's this really remarkable hiss. And uh it's almost th- there are multiple ways to read it, but I think it's I read it as just kind of a kind of a resentment of that idea of like I exist just to be like someone else's property essentially mm-hmm. like that's that's basically what it is there's not they're not incredibly subtle about it um i, I was did you have like a like a similar reading of that uh, moment yeah to me it felt like it was like man's worst nightmare is that like who you are you created your perfect mate and then she doesn't want you back like mm-hmm. and like doesn't accept that fate and so um that's the way i read it and so they have to be blown up in an explosion <laughs> because of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really complex, just sort of can of worms of a movie that uh, that I really love digging into. Um, you mentioned the uh, the uh, the homoeroticism of it uh, earlier. The what what you're uh, referring to there is the character Pretorius uh, has is long believed to be sort of like a coded gay character in the way that he sort of uh, tempts. Dr. Frankenstein away from marriage, um, away from this, you know, vanilla heteromor- uh, heteronormative matrimony to mm-hmm. this sort of unnatural uh, way of life and, and procreation and stuff. Um, and of course, uh, if you don't know, James Whale, the director was openly gay as well. So it's, it's a, it's not a, not a far fetched notion to read into the movie. Um mm-hmm. It actually, it of, of course, completely flew over my head the first time. The second time I was like, oh, there's something here. There's, there's something up with this character. Um, and, uh, and well, not even, I mean, not even just him, just in the book in general. I think the way that Frankenstein interacts with the monster um, and the way he sees him and like uh, is interested in him is, I feel like, can be read as a little bit homoerotic um yeah too yeah i think you're absolutely right there's this uh there's this sort of leering towards the monster and just the mm-hmm. peak physical uh ness if that's even a phrase of the creature <laughs> physicality uh, 
yeah, the physicality of the creature and just this admiration of this is what I've created. And there's this, there's of course this very possessive uh, undertone yeah. to it, but also the way that Frankenstein just sort of wants nothing to do with it, but keeps getting tempted back to it again and mm-hmm. again. Uh, it's meant to be the, sort of this just really uh, enticing, alluring sort of uh, perversion of nature instead. And it's got this real thrill to it that uh, it was a lot of fun to watch um, as is most of this movie. Um, I think I was um, probably the biggest complaint because I do like this a lot, um, but probably the biggest thing going back to it was if you having now read the novel, if you see, if you like watch how this movie starts compared to how the original movie ends, because uh, I rewatched the original just because why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really obvious how they just sort of perfunctorily said like, oh yeah, and also they're still alive. And also uh, Dr. Frankenstein wants nothing to do with this creature, but is also uh, tempted back into it again. Like that's the subtext, but in terms of just actually how it plays in the dialogue and stuff, felt very abrupt to me. So I was a little distracted by that. It almost, and that combined with the whole um, sort of a, I don't want to say lack of reverence, but the way they just sort of look at their own interpretation of the story is like the definitive uh, event or the definitive events that take place. I was just kind of like, okay, all right. You're sort of, you're sort of putting yourself up on a little bit of a pedestal here. Some of these plot points are really like hasty and uh, like rushed together and everything. But besides that, the the imagery of this movie is really fantastic. Uh, You mentioned earlier, just like the atmosphere of these sets, uh, not only of the castle, but of the forest as well. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's not, it's clearly not actually a forest. Like it's, they've got this big painting up in the background uh, with all these fake trees and everything and like rocks that are made of paper mache or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's got this sort of, uh, artificiality to it that makes it actually really uh, atmospheric, especially with the way that it's shot and everything. And so it actually doesn't come across as cheap or lazy or anything. It's very stylistic and very striking. And uh, uh, you, you'd recognize this aesthetic everywhere. And Mel Brooks did a really good job recreating it for young Frankenstein mm. uh, decades later, which, uh, which uh, always makes me uh, very pleased to know that, that, that they were able to do that so well. Um, is there anything else that we uh, weren't able to get to with Bride of Frankenstein that you would want to, that you wanted to touch on? Um, I guess just the fact that the title of the movie, I, that was the one thing for yes. me where I was like, this keeps going on. Where is the woman? I came here for her and she's not here yet. And she's only in it for three minutes. And so like, I found that super interesting that they kind of used her as a way, as like a purpose for the sequel, but then they kind Mm -hmm. of like took their time to do whatever they wanted beforehand, um, which I found super interesting. But I think it says something about the like kind of icon that she is, that even though she's only in there for three minutes, like, the image of her and the look of her is uh, still so uh, recognizable today. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a really, uh, really striking look. So it's easy to see how she was able to make such an impact. And it's funny in the sequel to this movie, son of Frankenstein, which takes place like years later, um, mm-hmm. we never find out what happened to her. So they just sort of completely huh. forget about her. So even they couldn't even like go anywhere with it. So it is a little, it does come off as a little callous, doesn't it? Especially yeah. given that um, 
it's it's this uh it's this sort of possessive quality to it you know the bride yeah. of frankenstein doesn't really have uh, a name or anything not unlike uh, uh uh rebecca which we talked about a few weeks ago the main hmm. character of that movie is never named is simply the wife of uh mr de winters and everything so it's this mm-hmm. weird weird cinematic uh tradition that that uh maybe starts here i'm sure it predates this but there's this is one of the biggest ones um and yeah, but that that iconic imagery is really fantastic. I found out that uh, Elsa Lanchester, who her, like the costume that she had to wear and everything, was so restrictive that like she couldn't move at all and had to be like wheeled around the set and everything, uh, <laughs> and and fed through straws and stuff. And so that's really the uh, amount of like times that I've read that for other movies. I think it was. Jean Harlow that like one of her dresses was so tight that she couldn't mm. sit down in it in between uh, takes that she had to lean up against this like board and that was her rest. And so like oh, the actresses in this time, they were, uh, they dealt with a lot more than we probably would think. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a, uh, it's, I might as well give it now. There's a Alicia Malone. I don't know if you know her, but uh, mm-hmm. she has a great sort of book sort of chronicling the, that, kind of experience through Hollywood called backwards and in heels. That's mm-hmm. a really great read. Uh, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in that book. Uh, and so, uh, which brings us to is the, is a, is there a similar movie to bride of Frankenstein that you would, that you would recommend as sort of a companion piece? Um, well, I mean the movie that we talk about next, I feel like is a definite one. Um, yes. <laughs> but I think, uh, one of the ones is The Old Dark House, which is Ooh. also a universal, and I think also the same director um, yeah. with uh, Karloff as well. Um, that one's really great. Um, same kind of feel to it. Um, but yeah, I really like that one. That's awesome. Yeah, that is a really good movie. And as a matter of fact, that's uh, James Whale and Boris Karloff. They had a falling out after that movie. And so that's actually the reason why Claude Rains was casted in uh, the Invisible Man as the main character. That was going to be Boris Karloff, uh, but mm. they just, they had a bit of a tiff. And so they actually under great, it was under great strain that you, that they reunited for this movie. So uh, that's very fascinating to find out uh, since, since we might as well, since we're in the thread of a uh, universal monster movies, um, this one never became like a franchise or anything, but one of the great, uh, early universal monster movies like really early i'm talking back in the silent era is a movie called the man who laughs um which is this really Mm -hmm. fable like story of this character uh with like a grin permanently like on his face it's it's weird to even describe it but uh and just sort of the ridicule that he experiences all through life that's a really uh great atmospheric a uh, silent movie that I highly recommend. It's really quite fantastic. So with that, I think why don't we move on to our final feature of the evening, shall we, Emily? Yes. Indeed we shall. It is, of course, Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such drivel? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What He's you? brilliant but a little weird. I've broken the six to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. 
but lately they're getting out of hand. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? 15 cc's of reagent being administered. Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Uh, now this is uh, this is based on a short story written in I want to say 1921 or 22, so almost a hundred years ago now. Uh, Herbert West Reanimator. Uh, Emily, have you read uh, Lovecraft's short story? I haven't. Oh yeah, I uh, I actually I thought I have some extra time, so last night I actually did read it. Um, and uh, it's relatively easy to find online. It was released. Mm-hmm uh in, in like a serialized manner so it was sort of one chapter a week in this one newspaper and so it's actually sort of a strange experience reading it all at once because each chapter of it i think there are six chapters of memory serves each one sort of recounts the events of the previous one not unlike the old mm. film serials and stuff uh mm-hmm. so i was confused at first i'm like i know this already why are you why are you rehashing this information but then i realized <laughs> oh this was released one week at a time and so that's just sort of the way it exists um and uh yeah hp lovecraft one of the one of the very famous uh sci-fi writers of the early 20th century uh has had an indelible impact on literature and cinema as a whole mm-hmm. to this day um also kind of a horrendously racist guy i don't know if you know that uh, i don't yeah just it, there i'm not going to go into detail but reading parts of the short story reanimator i was like oh my goodness this guy was incredibly just incredibly prejudiced uh so that was it's it's uncomfortable to go back and read um mm. and uh and weirdly enough Lovecraft was not a fan of Reanimator the short story. He did it, he was very upfront about it, just did it as like sort of a cash grab because he got I think it was $5 per installment. Uh and I don't know exactly how that how much that is from inflation, but evidently it was a relatively hefty sum, enough to put in the work every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and like diehard Lovecraft fans say that yeah, it's not the greatest uh thing. And I'm going to say they're right. Like it's fine. It's just mm. it's it's sort of interesting. It's meant, and this is the this is the fascinating connection that we've been teasing all along. It was meant as sort of to sort of poke fun at Frankenstein, which at that point mm. uh, had not been adapted to film by Universal. There there were a couple shorts in like the 1910s. One of which is actually quite good. Uh, that one uh, that can be found on YouTube pretty easily. Uh, but yeah, the, it was it was just sort of meant. It's it's a story about this guy who tries to revive uh, dead bodies of humans and animals alike, and sort of the recurring joke of it really is that it keeps failing miserably because it's really hard to do. Like mm-hmm. it's it just keeps almost working, but then something goes terribly wrong. And the way it 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 concludes in a way that's like really funny and kind of ironic. Um, but just in terms of a story, like it's just it's not very engaging uh but it was enough to inspire stuart gordon 
to make an adaptation in 1985 because evidently this as the story goes uh he was tired of dracula adaptations and wanted to see a frankenstein one and thought well the frankenstein the story itself has been adapted so many times why don't i adapt this parody that's sort of fallen out of favor and at the time it was actually uh widely out of print um and thus we have reanimator emily what is uh you you've seen this before correct yeah, actually, um, not too long ago, I think like a month ago, um, one of the writers at Film School Rejects, Meg Shields, she's a huge um, horror uh, extraordinaire in my yeah. eyes, and she told me to watch this. And so uh, this is my second time watching nice. it. Nice. And what is and uh, what is what was your uh, reaction to it that first time and also this time, if it's <sighs> different at all? So... Um, even though I am a horror fan, I'm extremely squeamish to gore and like <laughs> gross stuff. So oh, I boy. was, yeah. Uh, the first time I watched this, it was very, it was a lot of torture, but I enjoyed it um, to say the least. Oh goodness. The, the <laughs> effects on this movie are mm. next level. It mm-hmm. is absolutely insane the you, the 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 q-tip in the brain weirdly enough is what gets me more than anything that I'm sends shivers shaking. everywhere yeah the uh, let I, i'm just gonna shout out right now the uh makeup uh leading uh effects artist was john carl buchler who weirdly enough I, it's amazing how much this keeps coming full circles directed several installments of the Friday the 13th series. Wow. <laughs> it never ends. Mm-hmm. The connections never end. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, the, the story is based on uh, mostly on the first two serialized chapters of the, uh, of the short story of uh, the Lovecraft short story. Um, and it sort of concludes in a way that's meant to be sort of self-contained that also sort of, has echoes of the conclusion of the original short story. But the basic gist of it is that there is uh, a scientist, Herbert West played by played wonderfully by Jeffrey Combs, uh, who has decided not unlike Dr. Frankenstein, I'm going to devote my entire professional life and career to unlocking the secret of bringing life of, of bringing people back from the dead. Uh, mm. And uh, what happens is that, uh he sort of he sort of gets the attention of another young student at this college um let me look at the name Dan Kane is the character played by Bruce Abbott and they just sort of go about trying to try to figure that out and uh it's a lot of gore it's a lot of a lot of reanimated like severed heads and stuff and lots of corpses. There's a lot of morgue scenes in this movie. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's mostly an effect showcase. I think, is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. And a damn good one. I want to know what, Mm -hmm. uh, so, so you mentioned that it is uh, horrifying and uh, really just physically hard to watch sometimes. Yeah. But, Besides that, uh, as a movie itself, are you w- would you consider yourself a fan of this? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think it puts itself like on that high of a pedestal when it comes to the story. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's pretty self aware that it's like pretty simple and kind of silly. Um, yeah. But then the effects of it and the visuals of it is is what makes it so different. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's interesting that you bring up like the humorous element to this. There's a lot of imagery in this movie that if it's not meant to be funny, I would be very surprised. It's like mm-hmm. this just surreal imagery of like dozens of corpses leaping around and just doing God knows what and all this crazy stuff happens that we can barely even make sense of how this all came about. I think it's meant to be sort of morbidly hilarious to watch at mm-hmm. times. Um, which it's, it's gained, uh, it's, it's considered a cult film widely, which I think it definitely fits that description. I think a lot of cult movies, there's this, there's sort of this perception, which is not entirely untrue, but this perception that, uh, a cult movie is just sort of defined by a general presence of like really weird sex and violence. Uh, mm-hmm. and while that is definitely true, there's, there's a, an important angle to that, which is, a lot of the best cult movies are kind of off-putting. Like they mm-hmm. have to be kind of hard to watch sometimes. And that's the reason why not everyone can get on board with it. It's not because it's like tried to do something and failed. It's because what the hell is it? Mm-hmm. Like it has to be hard to figure out. Yeah. To me, like the definition of like a cult movie is it's not taken seriously widely. And so the fans of it are like so dedicated to, uh, you know, being fans of it and like supporting it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Appreciating it unabashedly mm-hmm. on its own level. However, goddamn weird that level is. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think this is, this is definitely one of them. Um, one of one of the early scenes, which I think is uh, has this hilarious detail in it, is where uh, it's in Switzerland. I want to say in Zurich, Switzerland, and there's been some sort of accident, and these doctors like rush into a laboratory where this doctor is writhing around on the ground and then dies. And there's Herbert West saying like, "I didn't kill him. I gave him new life," and thus we get just sort of the the entire identity of this character uh the name of that doctor who dies in the first scene is hans gruber Mm -hmm. which is of course alan rickman's character from die hard and this predates die hard so either that's a huge coincidence or john mctiernan was a fan of reanimator i guess i like to think it's the latter (laughs) i actually don't know um but yeah i want to know so so besides um the uh, just sort of the extravagant violence and effects of it all. Uh, is there some? Is there anything else that uh, really like speaks uh, speaks to you about Reanimator as being sort of uh, unique and exciting in its own way? Um, I guess just like watching Dan's character kind of go along with this <laughs> like really weird guy that he lets live in his house, and like he's definitely the worst roommate you could think of. Oh yeah. Um, within days the cat is dead (laughs) yeah um i don't know just like watching that and being it's like frustrating because you're like come on dude like get it together but at the same time it's kind of fun because we're on this ride of like whatever's gonna happen like it just keeps getting worse and worse for him um which is what i kind of want in a horror movie yeah 
Yeah, it's it's this definite sort of spiral into madness. Um, and I think it's funny, or uh, not funny, but just sort of interesting. Uh, the way time plays out in this movie, specifically with the editing, we're not we're not actually always given the best idea of like how much time is taking place from one sequence to the next. It mm. sort of reminds me of, and maybe just because I watched it a few days ago, but uh, the original Frankenstein from 1931. There's another connection mm. where mm-hmm. the way that movie is edited, uh, especially in like the first half and everything, where it'll just sort of fade out and then fade back in. And we don't know how long it's been, but we see that like change has been made and it makes this, it's, it's this really sort of uncomfortable uh, environment to watch where you don't know, like when the screen fades out, you don't know what it's going to fade back to. So it creates this sort of uncomfortable mystery around it. And this plays out very much the same way. Um, Mm. And uh, I think uh, besides all the, wonderful effects and everything there was there's something that you brought up briefly which and i want to know if uh if you got this interpretation as well um it seems to me like this is almost a movie about how should i say this about how men let other men get away with stuff just sort Hmm. of out of like curiosity does that does that make any sense at all it does it wasn't something that i had thought about um but yeah that makes sense i mean like where do you i guess explain your take for me Ooh, don't mind if i do yeah it's <laughs> um it's it, and i might be completely off here already because it's not in, immensely called attention to um mm-hmm. but there's something about the way that dan is just sort of morbidly fascinated by what herbert west is doing at the expense of uh, his girlfriend, played by Barbara Crampton, who just gets kind of the worst treatment of anyone in this movie. Like this is mm-hmm. intensely like we're like just us watching it is really scary. This is intensely nightmarish from her perspective. Like all yeah. just all the stuff that she has to go through and everything. Um, and I and and clearly like she is having none of it. And when the it's that first scene where she realizes like, Oh, this creepy guy who moved into our house has taken our cat and murdered it. Mm-hmm. That's no good. Whereas Dan on the other hand is like, now hold on a second. Let's, let's, let's give him the benefit of doubt essentially is the, mm-hmm. is kind of the implication I get from that. And so, and uh, in conjunction with the way that, uh, uh, David Gale, this character, um, who, uh, yeah, c- who's kind of, c- kind of a repulsive character in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that he just sort of decides like, no, I am in charge here and I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to do horrendously unimaginable things. Uh, it just, it just got, it just gave me this sense that like, there's an angle to this story where, that's kind of what it's about. Just the unseemly things, uh, like the lengths that men will go to just to, just to prove they can do something, you know, just to sort of, just to sort of say like, don't, you know, don't tell me no or anything. It's, uh, it's just that kind of thing. And that's, that, that's kind of what I got out of it. So I'd be curious if I, and I didn't, I didn't see any other reviews saying like, that's what they got out of this, but uh, who knows for all I know, that's, that's a, that's a secret layer that exists beneath the surface of mm-hmm. reanimator. Yeah. I don't know. Does, does that, that all make sense, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like any movie uh, Frankenstein is similar to that of just like 
they want to do something different and even if it's if they screw up like they cannot take the mistake of it um and i think that's in this movie as well Mm -hmm. yeah it's this very uh uh, hubris is the keyword here i think Mm -hmm. and and indeed the way that it concludes it's it's as if the notion of science and morality itself is furious with humanity and is just sort of bursting at the seams. Uh, and it's really glorious, but also uh, you can easily see how it got to this point. Um, mm-hmm. is, is, uh, is, is we've, we've talked a bit about it. Is there anything else uh, in reanimator that we didn't uh, quite get to yet that you wanted to, to mention? Um, I guess, I don't know. Just, I've never seen anything quite like the guy walking around with his holding his own head. (laughs) Like, I think that is such a crazy image and like something that will haunt me for sure. Uh, Oh, I loved this. It's 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 really impressive, too. Like with, with the exception of one shot where they have the torso with no head, like walking up to a desk. Mm-hmm. There's a very clearly visible stagehand, like holding the puppetry equipment in the background. Like I'm mm. amazed they <laughs> let that. I'm amazed they let that into the final movie because it's incredibly obvious. But besides that, it's remarkably effective. There are scenes where it's just this guy holding his own head, and you're like, oh gosh, and how'd they do that? But be, it's it works because it's so convincing. So I think mm-hmm. that's. Uh, no small feat there. So that's that's three movies we talked about with with very impressive uh, uh, makeup effects and stuff. So I think mm-hmm. I think we chose a, a hell of a three. Is there uh, is there a movie that you wanted to recommend in uh, in conjunction with Reanimator to go along with it? Um, so I had watched the movie that he made that Gordon made the year after From Beyond before I watched uh. Reanimator. Um, and I don't know. I just feel like it's disgusting too. I don't know if it's like the story wise as interesting to me, but I just feel like if you like that level of grossness, I think it has the same amount. Emily, you took my recommendation. I was going to say the exact same thing from (laughs) beyond, uh, is the movie that Stuart Gordon made also with, uh, Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton the year right after this. And it's also a Lovecraft adaptation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the one with like brain doctors who discover that the pineal gland might be the key to all of reality and stuff Mm -hmm. and unlocking this alternate dimension filled with like flying sea monsters it's Mm -hmm. it's really grotesque uh and has some arguably even more repulsive effects than reanimator so that is that is a hell of a movie i watched that just the other day because i was like what better time than now and i was uh thrilled and also repulsed so i'm glad that we're i'm glad that we're on the same boat with that one And with that, I think uh, unless there's uh, there's anything else, I think that might be our show. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for joining me. I, I hope you had as good of a time as I did. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy being on the show. Yeah, it's. I, I look forward to many more in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, let the listeners know is is the is there anything you want to plug where they can find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter all the time. Um, Emily Kube underscore, and then um, on my work mostly is on film school rejects uh i have a interview with uh liz garbus who created the hbo series i'll be gone in the dark um that's coming out soon on there as well 
That's awesome. Yeah, definitely go check that out. Uh, I am on Letterboxd, of course. That's uh, that's where I just log everything I'm incessantly watching. Uh, and also, I'm back on Twitter for the time being. It's been Ooh. almost a year. Uh, I don't know how long it'll last, but for the moment, I am there uh, at Nolan Sam because at Sam Nolan was taken by someone who does not use the account, and it drives Aww. me nuts on a daily basis. But that. <laughs> is where you can find us. Thank you again for listening to The Extra Milestone. I believe we will sign off from the internet Colorado. I'm Sam Noland. From the internet Pittsburgh, I'm Emily. And we'll see you on the next Extra Milestone.